Chicago. It's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. What's up, everyone? My name is Raj Nation, founder and chief pitch artist at Startup Hype Man, where we help startups not suck at how they pitch themselves. How? By making sure their audience sees them not as the best, but as the only. And this podcast is the only show where you will hear from leaders in the startup ecosystem sharing a piece of their heart, their mind, and their story on how they are charting their own path, growing their companies, and choosing not to play the game, but to change the game. Before we get going, hit the subscribe button on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. Also, head over to StartupHypeMan.com and subscribe to our Point of View letter, where we share original articles, insights, and resources all to help you become the only of your industry. All right, get your popcorn ready and get hyped. It's showtime. Ladies and gentlemen, making his way to the microphone from Beirut, Lebanon, and currently residing in London, England. He is the CEO of Astea. Please welcome Hadi Radwan. That's an amazing intro. Thank you for having me. <laughs> you know, I realized it as I was saying it. So I, I do professional ring announcing for MMA. And there is a Radwan. I I, it occurred to me, I've actually announced a Radwan in the <laughs> ring before. I think it was Ali Radwan. So uh, you're... The way I did your name is exactly how I've done it in the ring before. <laughs> All right, it worked perfectly. Right. I'm just not an MMA player. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in the you're you're fighting through the arena of entrepreneurship. We could say that <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, like I mentioned, he is Javi Radwan, the founder and CEO of Astea. Astea is out there on a mission to make income insurance accessible to everyone, irrespective of their age gender, or income. And in just a few short years, and actually less than that, Astea has been able to grow to raising $15 million in capital. They have processed over $20 million in insurance premiums through their platform and generated $5 million in annual recurring revenue for the company. And a big way they've been able to get to that MRR figure, or ARR figure rather, has been through their distribution strategy which is why our topic today is reducing your CAC, your customer acquisition cost, through a distribution flywheel. Javi, once again, welcome to the show. Tell me, why is this on your mind and why is this important to you? Well, uh, we started a few years ago um, to see why people are basically uh, living on, on a paycheck to paycheck in the US specifically. And and the statistics were alarming, like more than 50% were not saving. And then we noticed that also there's a lot of people who buy certain types of insurance that are not related primarily to their income, which is the most important asset that you need to protect in your life. And uh, we came across disability insurance, which as you can see, the name is not very attractive. It's negative and 15% or more of the population in the U.S. don't know it exists. So that's, uh, that, that opened our eyes to say, okay, here's an opportunity where we can come in and figure out why is it that case? Is there any specific reason why people are not buying a product that they should need and what's happening there? So this, is, this was our segue into the disability space, and we can you know, dive deeper into how we've identified what's missing and why it has not been that attractive in the, in the past. We are going to dive a whole lot more into that because I think it's a pretty interesting story. And especially I do want to touch on later on that intentional use of languaging around income insurance versus disability insurance. Before we dive into all of that, though, let's learn more about Javi, the person, the individual. Now, Javi, you've got a global background, right? You grew up in Beirut. You've spent time in the US, you went to Harvard, you're living in London now. Not many people have lived on three different continents. What do you feel this global experience 
or I should say, how do you feel that global experience has shaped your perspective on human beings and relationship building? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think today Astea is a remote company. We work primarily from home and our uh, talent pool, they span four continents. So we have people across the globe that are working on this organization. And my background and my, my uh, work across different continents has allowed me to open the right proper communication with these people and convince them with our mission, irrespective of the culture. Because we have people in the Middle East, we have in Europe, we have in the US. They come from different backgrounds, different cultures, different personalities. And the ability to bring them all together into one company and communicate the vision was very important for us. And this is part of the experience that I've gained uh, throughout my, uh, my career. So how do you feel then that um, being across the globe, uh, perhaps in this idea of building remote culture at your company, um, do you feel that the experience you have has made you more trusting or the same amount of trust that you think you otherwise would have? of people who may not be directly across from you? The reality is, you know, when you're from different cultures, the way you communicate, the intention you communicate, the words you say, sometimes are perceived different. Hmm. So the moment that you know this for a fact and you're conveying a certain message, if you feel that the other party it seems they're confused, it's always not the intention that my mind goes to the, my 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 mind goes to okay probably there's a miscommunication probably there's a cultural gap and that allows me to go back and bridge that gap and see what's what's wrong hmm. and uh, you know people become more trustworthy with you from that angle because they know that you're not leading from an authority perspective you're not leading because you're the ceo of the company you're leading because you've built trust with those people and they can come back to you and say you know i'm not happy with this i'm not happy with that this is what happened in the company can you fix it so that's the perspective i i believe has helped me a lot and being from different cultures and meeting different people is it fair to say then that the way you listen is perhaps different than the way someone else might listen who hasn't had a broad experience and who isn't listening for culture. Uh, the, the connection cut, if you want to repeat the question. Yeah, let me do that again. I couldn't hear you. Sure. Is it fair to say then that the way you listen may actually be a result of your global experience? I mean, listening is an art by itself, irrespective of where you live or who you met. And that's the reason we have two ears and one mouth, right? <laughs> and, and yes, it, the listening is the most important part of leading an organization because we hire for people to come and tell us what to do, not the other way around. So you need to listen. You need to see what's going right, what's going wrong, and then figure out the right solution versus dictating for people what to do. So mm. that's, that, that's the ideal way I'd like to, to think about it. Okay, great. So given all this experience you've got, how do you end up getting into insurance in the first place? Because to the average person, you know, I don't know if as a teenager or as a kid, if they're saying to themselves, you know what, one day, I want to be. I want to make it in the insurance industry. How does this come together for you, and how does Astea become a company? Yeah, that, that's a great uh, um, story. So I graduated in 2010 from from uh, my MBA program, and I was looking for a job like every other MBA student, and I was looking for a corporate job with with a big company, and I wasn't very successful. And I met my co-founder, and he said, "You know what?" Um, why don't you come and work with me? And uh, I, have a, I have an interesting insurance business. I need help in it. So that was back in 2012. And as, as the, the years passed, we built a good relationship together. And we found out that the problem in the industry is the same irrespective of the country. You have incumbents, legacy system, uh, products that haven't changed for the past, 
non-digital journeys, distribution channels that are the same. So, so we said to ourselves, you know what, there's a, lo a lot of room here to, to uh, improve the market. And by 2015, I mean, you've, you, you would have noticed there, there was a lot of insurtechs that have started to come in and they've raised exponential sums of money throughout that uh, particular period. And everyone was saying the same. They were saying, hey, we're going to come and disrupt the insurance industry. We're doing something different. Everyone else in the past, all the, of these carriers all over the world, they don't know what they're doing. And a lot of investors believe them. And we've seen now that the, the market has dwindled. So many valuations went down by 90%. Disrupt an industry. You cannot assume that whoever built that industry doesn't know what they're doing. And uh, that was one of the ways Astea was built. It's built on a mission. It's built on sound principles, but it's also built on experience in the insurance industry. And we can dive deeper into, you know, when we talk about the customer acquisition, how we uh, molded our strategy to be different than other carriers. We're not a fastest, the fastest growing company because you cannot be very fast and very profitable and also the best looking company. That doesn't work. So you have to gradually grow the business. You have to figure out where you can improve without asking for a lot of money, and at the same time, without uh, alienating your uh, distribution partners, other insurance companies, or even the capacity providers. I, like, I really like what you said, that to disrupt an industry, you can't assume everyone in that industry always knows what they're doing. That's really, really powerful words that you spoke, and I hope everyone listening pays attention to that because... I, even even entrepreneurs who are out there with that mindset of, oh, we're going to take on this industry, I still think it's easy to be like, oh, but there's these big players here and they've already got a lock on the market. Um, so I really love that. To disrupt an industry, you can't assume everyone in that industry always knows what they're doing. Let's use that now to transition. And thank you for sharing the story of Astea's inception. Let's now take that base understanding and talk about what our main topic is today, which is reducing your CAC through a distribution flywheel. And the, I think the key word there is the distribution of the flywheel or flywheel based on distribution. Um, I want to first talk about a traditional method of going to market because I think most people in the tech world, they hear an insurance startup, they're immediately going to assume a, a D2C business model. And that's what you know you tend to see with some of the newer companies that have come out in insurance, like Lemonade, like I think Zebra is one, uh, ClearCover is one. Um, when you were first getting started with Astea, is that how you saw it as well? Did you say, okay, we're going to build this and we're going to go direct to consumer? The, the, the fact is we, we've never thought about D2C because we know the economics don't work and we can dive into that. So if you look at a traditional carrier, the, the Geico's, the state farms, you see these folks, they have a very um, a smart strategy, but they have a lot of funds behind them to be able to execute the strategy. So you'll see them do traditional media, digital, uh, uh, sorry, radio, uh, TV advertising. They keep on building the brand so that in the minds of the consumer, they're always there. If someone wants to buy insurance, they know that oh, I've seen this ad there. This is probably a reputable company. However, their distribution strategy that they've built over years is through third parties. So that's brokers, agencies. And the reason they've done that is if you go back to the first principles of insurance, there's two reasons why you buy it. First, you need it and you understand the importance of buying it or because it's mandatory. Other than that, you're not going to wake up in the morning and say, okay, I, I feel like buying insurance today. It's not an <laughs> iPhone, right? It's not an iPhone that gives you an immediate value. Remember, insurance is a, is a promise. So if I come to you today and say, give me $1,000, I promise you in the future, I'm going to give you back some money. Very little people will do that unless they really, really trust you. 
And that's what's insurance. It's, it's saying, give me money in advance, give me the premiums. And then if something happens to you in the future, I will be here to pay that claim for you. The reality is I might not be here and I might be here and not pay you. So there's so many un uh, unknowns going on. The only way you can actually believe someone is you need trust. The second element that's very important is you need fear. I need to come to you and say, hey, listen, if something happens to you, you die, your family is going to be broke. They're going to be living on the street. You need life insurance. That's the savior. So now with fear, we're going to give people money today for the hope in the future that if you're not here, they're going to come and give your beneficiary that sum of money. So there's an ecosystem that has done all of this. Now, when an insurer that comes in that wants to sell D2C, they either need to be very well-funded and no one's going to give you from day one a lot of money. So you cannot compete with the carriers on TV spots or radio spots. So you have to gradually build up your portfolio and then you get some money. But the easiest way where the other carriers are not very strong back then is digital ads. So you can outspend them on Google. You can outspend them on Facebook. You just say, okay, this keyword costs a dollar. I'm going to spend $2. And what happened is with time, this model is broken because the only winner is Google or Facebook or Instagram or whichever platform because there's a bidding system out there. So you outspend your competitor today. Next month, they will outspend you. And now your customer acquisition cost balloons. So what happens if, if you go to, back to first principle, if you're a company, your ultimate goal is to build investor value. And this is a function of your profits, of your future profits that will be sustainable. Now, if your profits today are negative because you're subsidizing uh, your, uh, your, your uh, future so that you grow it again, then it cannot last forever that you're negative because otherwise in the future, the negative value of the company would reduce its valuation. So now the insurtechs to compete with the big carriers and to go direct to consumers, they need to do two things. They need to outspend whoever's bidding there and they need to double down their investment because it's not a matter of spending. It's also a matter of building the trust. You need to be in the minds of the customer all the time. And remember, education is one of the key aspects which uh, the insurance industry in specific areas uh, face, which I mentioned earlier in, in disability insurance. That's the main reason people don't know about it. So not only you need to spend on your brand, on the product, but also you need to spend on education. So now the D2C players that are in the digital space have created a huge customer acquisition cost their um, long-term customer value is lower. So with years, you need a lot of time to break even. Now, here's the interesting part. The insurance that you're trying to promote, the problem with it is the switching cost is very low. So you invest a lot of money in someone and they can switch to another provider instantly. Someone just needs to offer them a discount on the price, they switch. Or their broker, the person who got the business to you today, uh, they can say, hey, you don't need to work with this company, switch to another company. With the D2C, the first one is an issue because even if you outspend your, your competition, even if you acquire the customer today, they can switch easily. The second option is already sold. I'm not working with a broker, so they cannot take my business, but they can actually find your client and try to convince them to switch. So that's still a risk out there. So now your CAC is very high. Your LTV is going to be lower because competition will eat out uh, um, that and allow, allow the customer to switch. The business model is broken. So the moment you say a D2C that focuses on a strong um, digital strategy, is not sustainable because at the end of the day, there will be someone who's going to outspend you. With the traditional carriers, they're much well uh, uh, positioned because they're spending on brand and not on customer acquisition. Where they're spending on customer acquisition is through their third-party distribution channels, which are brokers, agencies, etc. So they're not cannibalizing their own 
direct channels. If you see a Geico ad or a State Farm in the past, and you want to buy from them, you go to their website and they would say, which area do you live in? Okay, um, here's an agent close by. Uh, pick the phone and call them. Now, some of them have changed a little bit now their strategy. They, st- they have a direct uh, a channel on their website, but they do not promote it as often as the other D2C players. So that gives you a little bit of insight why the D2C model is broken with the current structure. And we've seen, by the way, you've seen the valuations of the public companies uh, that went out last, last year they dropped significantly because they were built on this model. So Astea being part of the industry, or me and my co-founder having been in the past 12, 13 years, we understand that if you want to build value, long-term value, and you don't want to raise billions of dollars, you need to go with a B2B2C strategy. And we've seen a lot of insure techs who, if you look back at their stories, they say, hey, we're disrupting the insurance space, we're going direct to consumers, everyone doesn't know what they're doing. Now suddenly, you see them switch to a B2B to a C model, but they don't put it out in the press. Because if someone looks them out, they can call them. And probably most of the people have called them out on this. But that's a strategy that's not sustainable. So everyone's switching now to working with third parties. And by the way, the big advantage with working with an agency and a broker, they're closer to the customer. They have a better relationship with the customer. So now the investment in building the trust is simplified because now you're bringing someone who has a trust with many customers and you're only building trust with one agent or with one producer or with one uh, independent, uh, let's say, uh, agency. That's the direction we went at. So... There's a lot to unpack in what you just said. And it was, there's a, a, a ton of nuggets in there. A couple of things I want to specifically highlight for our audience, because I don't want, I want to make sure they did not miss is you talked about how if you're trying to beat your competition on spend, you will get outspent either by the fact that they can just probably end up spending more than you like the next month or the next you know few months later. Or the fact that you may spend a lot to acquire the customer, but then it's still easy for the customer to switch to another company or another competitor. And then the other thing that you mentioned that I thought was a very important point was you mentioned how the big players in the industry don't cannibalize their own channels. And that's something that a lot of startups tend to overlook is they're like, oh, we're going to be doing these, these four strategies for customer acquisition, not realizing that one of those strategies may actually be eating into the other three instead of just focusing on one or two of those channels um, and not spread themselves, not only not spread themselves thin, but but spend more money because they are spreading themselves too thin and making their CAC a lot more expensive. And it's interesting to me because the ripple effect from that is so significant. Not only then is it like when every customer is costs more money to acquire, the value of each customer becomes so much more significant. And I don't mean that to say you shouldn't value your customers. I'm saying that in the sense that like, then losing a single customer becomes so much more of a hit to your business. It also means you've got a really tough time explaining to investors for your next round of funding that you have a scalable distribution or customer acquisition strategy which means now you're it's going to be harder to raise money and if you do probably at a lower valuation so it's like you know this whole thing that we're getting into is the flywheel and i feel like that high cac model relying on spend relying on spend it means that flywheel is you know is chugging along and never you know you're never hitting that one pedal where the wheel just keeps on spitting so Let's get into now how you set up your distribution strategy. Before we get there, I do want to point out for our listeners that not only has is what Hadi's talked about been a conversation around or been an explanation of the importance of distribution, I have to imagine it's also impacted how they built the product in the first place. And as a startup founder, 
You may know, listeners, that creating an app isn't easy, especially if you're going the software route, whether it's a mobile app or a web app. Um, it's not only that, I mean, it's not easy. Perhaps you find that it is you know, doable enough to get an app off the ground, but then making users stick it, you know, making the product sticky is not nearly as easy as getting it off the ground if you were able to get it off the ground. And the thing is, four in five apps launch in app stores get deleted after a single use, which is kind of crazy. But when I look at my phone, I see there are more apps that have the cloud icon next to them, meaning I downloaded and then they just went back up into the cloud because I never use them, than apps that don't have the cloud icon next to them. So as you're building your app, how do you thrive without a profound app development and UX experience? Well, guess what? You don't have to go at it alone. You don't have to be doomed to your app getting sent up to the cloud because there's a team out there that can help you to validate your concept, design, develop, and then ultimately launch your app. And once it's launched, make sure it stays in the market and stays sticky. And that team is called Nikito. They are the experienced experts that have built over 150 successful products for both startups and enterprises. So what that means is... They've got the agility and the innovative thinking to work at the pace of startups, but they've also got the know-how and the experience to build for enterprise. So they know what it means to work fast, but also work smart, uh, be able to innovate quickly while also making sure that that innovation is something that the market is going to latch on to over and over again. And yours could be the next app in a long line of over 150 successful products. All you got to do is reach out to Makito yourself to see if they could be the right partner for you. And their website, where you can reach out to them, is simple. Mikito.com slash hype man. That's M-I-Q-U-I-D-O.com slash hype man. Mikito.com slash hype man. Today on Startup Hype Man, the podcast, we're talking with Hadi Radwan, the co-founder and CEO of Astea Insurance, and we're talking about reducing your CAC through the distribution flywheel. So Hadi, before the break, you explained the issues with the legacy systems in InsureTech or the legacy, or, or the, actually rather, the you explained the issues with the direct-to-consumer model, specifically within InsureTech. You, and then you mentioned, you know, with with Astea, you're going, you know, you started by going to that individual agent or individual broker route, and that's how you created your initial distribution, without having a lot of brand equity or brand awareness in the market already. What did you have to do to convince these brokers, these agents, to carry your product and offer your product to their customers? That's a great question. So. The way we approach our distribution strategy is if there's two parties working together, so it's us or someone else, we both have to win or no one has to lose. But if it's a win-lose situation, then it would not work. What I mean by that is if I come to you and say, let's partner together, sell my product, and then you come to me and say, if, if I want to sell your product, pay me $1,000 today. And then I'll sell it to you on my platform. This approach is I'm losing if you don't sell and you're winning always. So with, with partnerships, we try to align the interests. So any type of partners that work with us, we both have to win. So that's the, that's the, the reason why we went the route of working with third parties that are licensed in, in the industry. But the way we approached it is we want we are a platform by the way so we're not just a product we're not just a software we're a platform we're an ecosystem that houses product that houses tools and uh, that tools allows uh, more of these agents to make money and then we make money in return so that's the flywheel we have products and tools we attract distribution they would sell our products they would make money we would make money we reinvest it in the platform and the mom momentum starts to pick up. And the way we built the platform is we went back to first principles and we said, we know for a fact that what drives the industry today are third parties. It's not direct. Direct is very minimal, probably 5%, 10%. So most of it is driven by third party brokers, agents, uh, what have you. And we thought to ourselves, if we 
want to come and say we're going to disrupt the distribution, we will be enemies of everyone and no one will win. We're never going to be able to raise so much money because others have tried it and now the model is broken. If we come and say we want to partner with everyone in the ecosystem, and the way to do that is to find gaps in the market that others have not solved for and to provide those who need to sell those gaps tools so that they make more money or they save on costs. And that's the attractive proposition for our, our partnerships or the distribution we went after. We said to them, we're offering you something that others cannot offer you. So if there's a gap that you think our products can fill, our products are available for you. And by the way, we have also a platform where it allows you to make more money or save more costs. And here's the different features on the platform that could help you do that. With this model, now it's an aligned interest because we're not uh, showing as uh, we're not showing signs of uh, uh, adversity with them. We're saying we're partnering. Here's the tools that we're using. Go make more money or save more cost. And now you're sticky. You're, their stickiness on the platform goes up. They would they would tell their friends. We'll have more agents, and those agents would you know sell more of our products. So we continue to uh, research the market for gaps in insurance. And we build those products, we put them on our platform, we make them digital, we make the process painless for uh, both the customer and the agent, we make it fast, we make it automated. And because at the end of the day, one of the reasons the market has not grown, and the reason why agents did not sell enough disability insurance is because it took so much time to issue a policy, it took months to issue a policy. So if you're an agent, you make money on commission, your goal is to sell the most number of policies the fastest way possible. If you have to wait three months to sell one policy, you'd say, you know what, let me switch to something much easier. And uh, that's directionally, if you want the approach we took to build our flywheel. More products, more features, attracts more distribution partners who sell more of our products, who would get money into the door and then we will reinvest it and continue this cycle. And as we align incentives, our model is not to burn cash to acquire customers, but to partner with these agents where we're providing value to them before they provide value to us. And that builds the trust with those agents who have trust with the customer. And basically we've built indirectly trust with the customer, even if they don't know the name of Astea, Although we're trying to be a hybrid uh, organization whereby we put our name out there so that if someone researches our name, they know who's behind it, what's our mission, uh, what's our value proposition. And uh, we have also very positive reviews in that case for people to buy that promise for, from their broker. So on that last note, what I'm hearing, let me know if I, I heard this correctly, it's creating... D to C awareness, but building a business model and a revenue model off of the B to B to C path. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And that's something you can compete on because you can put good content out there. You can come on podcasts like yourself and you can, you know, put out the word that costs some money, but definitely it's it's less competing than always bidding on on dollars and and, I, and which i think ends up being in like as you mentioned before an unwinnable game because you can't just keep i mean in theory over time you do reduce your cac when you are pumping money into an ad model however i think the challenge with that not only from what you said before it's not that hard for a bigger company to just start out spending you I think on top of that, these ad algorithms change semi regularly. <laughs> uh, so the you know whatever keywords you were buying on before, or whatever targeting you were doing before, now let's say Facebook changes their targeting algorithm, you're kind of back to square one. Or let's say government policy changes how people can be targeted, right? 
Um, there, I think there's too much reliance on factors that you don't have control over to where almost overnight, all the inputs you're putting into that could actually not matter anymore. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and by the way, the bidding thing might work in certain industries like uh, the transportation with Uber, Lyft. You see there's, there's a lot of money that uh, have been spent to acquire customers and there's only one or two big survivors in the, in the industry. You see that also in uh, uh, probably the uh, delivery space in, in Europe, Deliveroo and there's Zap. And there, there's some companies who can overspend and they can stay alive and then they consolidate the market. But in insurance, the problem is that you, you, even if you try to do that, it would not work because at the end of the day, you need a lot of companies to pay claims. The problem is with insurance is it's... Um, zero sum game right if if the company uh, you know collects premium from you and they pay all the claims out they they will be wiped out from the from the existence so there needs to be a lot of capacity in the market to pay claims so if you want to overbid everyone and take 100% market share let's assume this you take 100% market share you need to have because it's a regulated uh, industry you need to have the backing to cover 100% of the market in case of a catastrophe. If, if tomorrow a, uh, a huge earthquake hits the whole US, God forbids that, and wipes out everyone, and everyone has home insurance, and there's only one company out there, that company is going to be broke. <laughs> They're not going to be able to pay everyone. So it's a different model, and I don't think it, it lasts to uh, do the bidding uh, war. Honestly, though, I would even argue in the case of, say, an Uber and Lyft, they could spend so much on customer acquisition, but also look at how that's impacted both those companies now 10 years later after they've, you know, they did establish market presence, market dominance. And now the, the, what they've encountered is that the business model we built this company off of actually isn't sustainable if we keep doing that for the next 10 years. And, and that's where you're seeing cost of rides significantly higher than they used to be, right? And people like me, ironically, now we just opt to actually take a taxi instead of an Uber or a Lyft a lot of times because now the taxi, the taxi ride is actually lower cost. It's cheaper and it's on, on digital as well. So you've seen, I mean, you've seen the, the, the Uber strategy originally started there, but now they want to take more share of the customer's wallet. So they went horizontally. They started to move to yep. other verticals, slightly to food delivery, to groceries. The same thing with insurance. A lot of these insure techs said, hey, we're doing home insurance. We're doing renter's insurance. We're doing life insurance. Great. What next? You, you acquired the customer. Your model is negative. Now they need to get more share from the wallet of the customer. So they expanded their lines. Now they're selling car insurance. They're selling home insurance. So you see them actually moving to the full model of an insurance carrier because there's no way you can sustain a, a company with one product. Mm. With this model, I'm saying the D2C model. Sure. Now, in, in, in the model you've gone, right, the distribution, uh, in creating that distribution flywheel, you, met, you, you talk about how you're able to set it up and establish yourselves within the ecosystem. Can you share how you then scale that strategy up? Are you like so what I guess what I mean is are you having the same exact conversation with the same number of people every time or have you been able to perhaps I'm not saying this is it but an example would be like stack up your distribution by one one uh, agent is able to not then get you into five other agents because of their network things like that like like network effects has that been able to apply in this case? Or is it like the exact same thing and the exact same amount of effort that was being put in a year ago is what's being put in now for each new agent or, or broker that you're acquiring? Yeah. So basically the sales motion we follow is very similar to the SaaS model. We actually have a team who uh, does two strategies. We have a marketing uh, team that qualifies leads through different funnels that we do. And this focuses on independent and small agents. 
that don't have an affiliation with big accounts. But then we have a sales team who actually go out and uh, leverage relationships with big IMOs or producers. These are longer sales cycle and require uh, a little bit of a nurturing process. So we haven't changed that strategy, but we've expanded the team for a, for, for a wider reach because there's millions of agents out there in the US. I've got one final question now before we head to our wrap up. And I actually, I want to shift the nature of the conversation. Uh, and I mentioned it at the beginning of this, of this discussion. It was that idea around how you've been able to use branding and languaging effectively. Specifically, what I'm referring to is calling it income insurance instead of disability insurance. And, and th that decision really speaks near and dear to my heart because when we work with startups at Startup Hype Man, one of the things we try to be really intentional about is figuring out like how do you create the language that the market should start using? Um, one example is like with a company called Rumi and the founder Dapo, who's been a past client, past guest on this show, actually. What I love that Dapo did for a furniture marketplace startup, he specifically has called used furniture. Instead of calling it used furniture, he's calling it pre-loved furniture. And he's calling the, the, the buyers or the renters on the marketplace, instead of users or whatever you want to say, uh, he refers to them as furniture lovers or furniture fanatics. And that intentional languaging, I think, is so important in getting your message across and establishing your brand within an ecosystem. So can you explain your strategy in calling it, in choosing to not call it disability insurance and instead call it income insurance? The reality is that the, the name, the disability insurance, does not reflect the product itself. What it should have been called is income insurance because the product protects your income against an accident or an illness. It does not protect you from getting that disability. That's something uh, that you will never uh, be able to prevent, right? So we said, if you want to make the product more, more uh, in line with what the customer uh, understands, you have to change the name to what really the product reflects, which is protecting your income against illnesses and, and accidents. And our intention in Asteo, part of our mission is, you know, we have the products to do that, but also we want to build content around the ability to prevent potential disabilities. So how can you take care of yourself? How can you, you know, be aware that uh, things might happen, the statistics around disabilities, but you cannot prevent those from happening. There are certain things that unfortunately we cannot... Avoid. However, if they do happen, you need to realize that there is something out there like an income insurance product that would, in, in times of crisis, would protect your most important asset, your income, that would help you, you know, go through that unpleasant uh, uh, process, but in a way not to even have it worse when you're, when you're in a disability mode and you don't have money. It's a problem. It's, it's, it's a very... Uh, it's not talked about enough, unfortunately. That's what we want to change. We want to tell people, this is a product that you need. It's not, even if it's not mandatory. Health insurance is mandatory, right? You go to an employer, they have to offer it to you. Um, car insurance is mandatory in, in many countries because, you know, there's so many accidents happening out there. Disability should be as well because if something happens to you, you're out of work, your employer might let you go. And what do you do in that case? you still have a family to uh, take care of and you still have you living with, with whatever problems that, that came from the disability and you cannot help your, your, uh, your family survive. So I think it's a, it's a critical matter to make it clear that it's not a disability product, it's an income product. And is that something that you, when you make these, build these relationships with your distribution partners, do you teach them to also call it income insurance? We raise awareness on that because they're very familiar with disability insurance products from other carriers. So we raise awareness that, you know, when you talk to your um, customer, make sure to 
focus on the income part and we are now uh, releasing uh, next month an income insurance calculator where it tells you uh, based on your situation what gap do you have in your uh, in your life and it simulates for you in case something happens to you you die or you get disabled for a period of time what happens to your income? So it simulates your saving versus your income with a few assumptions. If you have a family, what age you are, and then you would put some assumptions out there. Like if I get disabled the next five years, can I still survive without any income? So it's a, it's a nice way to put things in perspective. Yeah. Well, and I also just think about like for your end consumer, you know, I mean, all of us, we're all consumers of insurance, right? By default. And I think the average person, when they think about, should I or should I not get disability insurance? What they're going to default to is, well, I don't, they're going to say, well, the likelihood of me, you know, becoming disabled or having, you know, having a disability from an accident is pretty low. Versus once you call it income insurance, then the mental conversation becomes, do I want to protect my income or not? Right. So it actually changes the inner dial or inner monologue of the end user. I feel exactly, exactly. No one, I mean, no one thinks that something is going to happen to them. Everyone thinks we're invisible. Nothing is going to happen to us. When you change the perspective, you know, you, you change the way you look at the product. Let's hit our wrap up now. First off, Javi, where can our listeners find you and find Astea and learn more? So you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, and Astea is on astea.world. So it's A-S-T-E-Y-A.world. That's where you can find our um, products. And we're also very active on social media, you see our post on LinkedIn and Instagram. So whoever wants to reach out, I'm usually very responsive on my LinkedIn. Javi, who is one person who you'd like to give a shout out to today who's been helpful for you on your journey? Well, I, I can give a shout out to someone who might not hear me, but he's my, my idol. His name is Tony Robbins, and he ah. changed my life back uh, in 2015. I did his... Uh, Firewalk, and I think the perspective of life, the perspective of business, changed when I've done that. So I think I owe him this one, although he doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, he'll tell you. We'll tag him, and maybe just maybe he'll see it. Uh, exactly. I, actually, I, I did uh, last year. I did the virtual Unleash the Power Within seminar, which I thought was uh, quite a great. It was a great experience to be part of. I can only yeah, imagine absolutely. what being in person for firewalking was like. Oh yeah, ten times. Let's now go over our final lessons, our top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners based on the discussion today. I'll go first and I'll toss it to you. The topic today was reducing your CAC through a distribution flywheel. Um, what I want to come back to that I just thought was really, really good is this idea of if you try to beat your competition on spend, you will get outspent either by the competition simply outspending you directly or your customer being able to easily switch to a competitor. So the high spend upfront may cannibalize your entire business model. Javi, top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners. It's very important when you want to start your business, I think to think to, to do the right research, uh, look at the business models out there, uh, be strategic and try to stick to your flywheel, define your flywheel, see if it's working, test it out with other people and stick to it, don't change. And I think eventually if you execute properly on it, good things will come. My final question, which is how we end every episode of this show, fill in the blank hobby. Entrepreneurship is blank. That's an interesting one. Um, so the way I would see entrepreneurship is a process 
whereby you find a pain point or a problem, you find a solution, you execute the sales playbook, and you do that successfully. If those three ingredients work nicely, you will, you will reap the rewards of, of your venture or your business or your entrepreneurship. What's different about entrepreneurship and working in the corporate world, it's exactly the same formula. But when you go and work with, for someone else, maybe they have figured out the problem, maybe they figured out the solution and they want you to execute the playbook, or maybe they figure out the problem, but they need you for a solution. And that's the main difference between entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is all of these three things that you handle them, you take the risk and you reap the rewards versus working for someone else who've handled one or two or three of those things. Entrepreneurship is a process. He is Javi Radwan with Astea Insurance. Javi, thank you so much for joining today on Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. It was an amazing episode. And listeners, don't forget, coming soon is the official startup mixtape. That's right. We are producing, we are creating a hip-hop album dedicated to the founder journey, and it'll be available on Spotify, probably other streaming platforms as well. And if you want to be the first to get in on that when it releases, just subscribe to our point of view letter at startuphypeman.com. The startup mixtape dropping soon. We'll catch you next week. That's a wrap on this one. Shout out to our guests once again for sharing their story with us. If what you heard impacted you, do one of three things. One, let our guests know. Reach out to them directly. They love hearing from you. Two, leave a rating and review on Apple. Or three, simply hit the share button and share this episode with one friend who you think would benefit from hearing it. Catch our full episode archive at startuphypeman.com slash podcast. And if you want to make your pitch not suck, reach out to us through the website. That's all for this week. We'll catch you next time. Raj Nation out. Believe the hype.